Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello friends and listeners, welcome to a new episode of the Thought Service Podcast. This is episode 19 of season 8 and uh, it's my great pleasure to have you here with me on the podcast. My name is Rudolf. I am, as always, your host and also the creator of this show. And by the way, while I'm speaking about creating, have you already been on my internet radio Kaikobad Radio. I'll post the link once again, as always, in the show notes, but also it's on the first page of our website on Thoth Hermes. Kaikobad Radio is a radio where you can listen to esoteric and occult content, the best of the podcast world in that field, 24-7 over the world, wherever you are. Just tune in. It's an internet radio for free for all of you. 24 creators have already Joined people like Greg Kaminsky from Occult of Personality, Alexander S. from Glitch Battle, and our latest is Esoterica, the great video cast from, uh, from YouTube by Dr. Justin Sledge and many, many more alchemy culture, um, Ecosophia, uh, Institute for Hermetic Studies, Living Thelema. I'm sorry, I can't name them all here. Go there, go to Kaikobad Radio, listen to that radio station. You're really going to like it. Okay, but here, here is also a very special moment here today because I'm welcoming somebody. I think maybe many of you haven't come across yet. I get the impression and I tell you, it's such a pity. Frate Barabbas is my guest here today. I'll tell you more about him in a minute. And he really is a great guy with a lot, a lot of things to say that are very important, very interesting for us magicians here. So don't miss out on our episode. Well, you're here. You're not going to miss it. Right. So talking about missing, have you already encountered the Patreon button on my website. Well, for that, you need to know the website first, right? Okay, I'll give it to you again. Thoshermes.com, that's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. Two people joined again as supporters, as patrons this week. And, well, I have to name one of them. I want to name one of them, but I'm allowed to name also one of them. Um, in particular, because... Well, he became our first adept ever um, uh, on, on the highest level of patron support. That's a person named J.Ibis. That's probably a pseudonym. I'm in touch with him via email and thanked him. And he said, yes, I'm feel free to use his name. Uh, so thank you, Ibis, for your great, great support and um well, you don't need to be, go that far. If you have $1 per show to spare, we really need that. 
I'm not making this up. We need that. Uh, my computer is also coming to its end of life. I will start to go to fun thing soon here um, because, well, you know, that uh, making of podcast and radio content and, well, internet content in general, well, it uses your machine. You need some support to be able to sustain it. So enough of that. Patreon.com and go to the Todd Hermes podcast page or go on the website and click on the Patreon button or why not a donation and look out for the GoToFund, which will be coming soon. All right. Um, so... If you are on the website, if you're new to this show, you should also go and see all the previous episodes. This is now the 133rd episode that's online at the same time. There were a couple more, but which are no longer available because they're outdated or so. But 133 episodes to listen to. You have something to do, right? And I tell you, they are really interesting shows, people of very, very high quality are there. And um, it's always a pleasure also to have them as my guests. I love doing this show for you. I hope you can see and hear and feel that. Right. Um, as always, in my shows, there is also music. And we'll come to that in a second. Before that, I just want to remind you that I would love to have your feedback. Your feedback um, is important to me. I'd love to know how you like the show, if you like the show, if you don't like the show and why. And also if you have interesting things to tell me about new guests, people I might not know. And uh, well, actually, I'm going to do an interview in a few days with somebody who was suggested uh, by one of our listeners who I had in fact not known. And I'm sure it's going to very interesting, going to be a very interesting interview. Thank you for that. And um, also if you have music, music that you would like me to play here, music that's your music, of course, that you have created. Um, we have often had people who did that, who brought their music, and it was then performed here on the show. I'm happy to do that anytime when you want. And so do let me know about your creations. Great. So talking about music, now it's music time. And um, well, uh, uh, this time it's not uh, it's not um, music by one of our listeners. In the interview, somehow Frater Barabbas and I came onto the age of Aquarius, really just touched it briefly. And as we are both about the same age, of course, well, the age of Aquarius was a bit before our time even. Of course, we were little boys back then. That, that inspired me. And of course, you can't play the original Fifth Dimension version from Hair from, uh, because it's... It, the copyright questions there you can't do it but um still the aquarian age inspired me so it's all about aquarius and 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 if you like the age of aquarius the original song stay tuned anyway because till the end because at after the interview the third piece of music you i have a surprise for you then so stay tuned until then of course you do anyway don't you so now the first piece is called aquarius and it's from a musician called jean Jan Griffin, it's an ex, I suppose it's Jan Griffin. He produced a CD called Zodiac and has, of course, 12 uh, tunes on it, 12 tracks. For each sign of the Zodiac, there is one. It was produced in 2018. He is a music producer and songwriter. Also very interesting if you 
are interested in his in in, in producing music yourself. He gives very he teaches very interesting courses online on YouTube. Uh, I'll drop you I'll drop you the link, of course, also in the show notes. And guess what I picked as a track from Zodiac? Well, Aquarius, of course. So now coming up. Um, Aquarius from the album Zodiac from 2018 by Zhang Griffin. Enjoy!
Aquarius by Jean Griffin from his CD Zodiac from 2018. Of course, 12 tracks on there, one for each of the zodiacal signs. Great stuff. And do not miss his page, which I put in the show notes, because it's also interesting for music producers, who many of you are, to find out about his courses there. Right. So now it's up to meet Frater Barabbas. Frater Barabbas, um, as I explained in the intro, I was a long time follower of his blog and I read his books um, well, probably almost 20 years ago. I'm not exactly sure when they came out. I think it was in the late 80s. Uh, anyway, I read them a bit later, of course, but they are really great books. Mastering the Art of Ritual Magic, for example, three volumes, or his series on witchcraft. Um, you should really uh, get them. And, well, his blog was silent for quite some time. And suddenly in May, um, first blog entry popped up, and then a second, a third. So he was more active again. He explains all that happened and why that happened. Uh, I don't want to keep you with that. We speak about it in the interview. And Frater Barabbas is really, really a wonderful guy. I had read his stuff. I had read his books and blog, etc. And I always thought he was a great guy. And now that I spoke to him in person, I underline thrice that he is a wonderful person and has a lot, a lot of interesting things to say. I read you a few uh, paragraphs from his Mastering the Art of Ritual Magic Volume 1 from the intro, because they exactly see where he goes and what it's all about. It's fascinating. So it starts by saying, It's assumed that you, the student magician, have already established some level of ritual practice. Ideally, the practice is proposed in my book, The Disciple Guide to Ritual Magic, and that you have become competent, experienced, and comfortable in that practice. However, there's much more to the study and practice of ritual magic than that was written in my previous book, and that work was just the introduction, a means of getting a student to approach magic as a comprehensive discipline. The next step for a magician is to write his or her own personal magical system, combining all of the studies, insights and experiments into a completely new formulation. Why is this important as a next required step in the development of a ritual magician? First, successfully writing a magical system will give you a wealth of knowledge and experience. Second, you, the magician, must use a magical system that is intimately meaningful and produces profound and life-changing experiences for you. Just utilizing other people's rituals and perhaps mutating them or just using them as it will, not, it will not gain the earth-shaking transformations and powerful insights that are the rigueur of the experienced ritual magician. The challenge is to write from scratch a complete system of ritual magic. And the reason for this challenge should be obvious, to make it your own system. No longer can you just accept the word of other people, even if they are considered wise and masterly. You must leave the popular path of practicing simple rites and acquiring lore from books on the internet and instead forge a completely new system of ritual magic. 
However, as your right brain teacher, I won't just throw you to the wolves by telling you to have at it without any assistance or plan. We will work together, you and I, and examine this advanced lore. The objective is to understand ritual magic from a much deeper and insightful level, to know and understand how ritual magic works so well that we can easily write our own rituals or intelligently examine other people's rituals. Well, I must say I have hardly ever heard that being said so clearly and openly, and I think it's a fascinating approach. Um, you should read those books and um, anyway, if, if when, when you listen to our talk, um, we are not going to speak about that in detail, of course, but it's not the time and, and uh, the, the, the time we have here, but um, you're going to understand why Father Barabbas says that and is such a fascinating personality. Okay, so without further ado, let's meet him just before we go there. Um, I want to remind you that approximately 38 minutes this time into our interview, there will be a musical break, Aquarian music once again, a spleen I have it today. Okay, so 38 minutes and 16 seconds to be precise into the talk. There will be the break and uh, after that we'll continue. So now let's go and meet Frater Barabbas, or I should say Frater Barabbas Tarasius, because that's his full magical name. Enjoy. Here comes the interview. There is sometimes people who, when you do a podcast, you see their names, you read their books, you have um, contacts with them even uh, for quite some time and then they suddenly disappear or seem to disappear somehow. And then like out of the blue, of course, that's only an impression that you have as being the other side, on the other side, suddenly they appear again. And that's what happened with me to our guest uh, recently. Um, I have been a subscriber of Frater Barabbas' blog and read his, read his books um, for many years. And I always found that blog highly interesting. And well, no more blog entries came. And then suddenly in May, uh, he started blogging again, uh, I think three or four blog entries in May alone. And as always, very interesting, highly new in many aspects and always also, I wouldn't say provocative, but different from other blogs that I read. And I really like what he does. And I'm very, very glad I contacted Frater Barabbas after that. And here we are finally, uh, Frater Barabbas, it's great to have you, great to have you on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Of course, no, um, it's true what I'm saying. And um, from the rabbis, uh, when we prepared for this talk here today, um, I was warning you that I was going to delve a little bit into your early backgrounds, because I think um, as a experienced and I may say seasoned witch that you call yourself also uh, mostly, um, you have uh, a story that is interesting to share. Um, how did it very early all start for you? How did you get into contact, in touch for the first time with the world of magic and um, witchcraft and all those things that then became part of your life? 
Um, I was sort of um, different than your average person. Um, I really wasn't uh, part of the gang. Um, I tried to be a jock and I failed miserably at that. Um, I really didn't fit in anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, so we're going back to the 60s, the late late 60s and all of that. And what was going on in the USA at that time was um, a fascination with um, astrology. And there was a song, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the dawn of the age of Aquarius and yeah. uh, all of this stuff. And also there were people who were starting to um, promote uh, different and alternative religions. And uh, that really struck and appealed to me. Um, but I was really a searcher or a seeker. And people who basically find themselves involved in occultism and magic or mysticism um, or some Eastern tradition are seekers. They're not satisfied with what is going on. They are bored with orthodoxy. Um, You know, when I was uh, quite young, I got kicked out of uh, Sunday school because I asked too many questions. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was basically told, well, look, you know, you're supposed to have faith. You know, these are accepted uh, things. And uh, but I grew up a Protestant um, and, uh, you know, there wasn't there wasn't the ritual and um, and all of the, uh, um, you know, artistry and, and music and everything associated with Catholicism. I think Catholicism mm-hmm. is actually really a much more powerful form of Christianity because it has all of that pageantry built into it. Um, But, you know, I couldn't buy Christianity and I couldn't buy its myths. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. It didn't touch me in my heart. But I was a dreamy child who basically retreated from the world around me because of the fact that my father was really harsh and difficult to deal with. He was an authoritarian ex-military. So he was um, kind of uh, tough and he did not believe in anything. He was a complete atheist, Um, which from what I understand in in reading about history, um, that is something that actually happened to a number of people from his generation. You either became much more religious or you basically felt that there was that God and all of that was just a bunch of bunk because yeah, of the yeah. fact that so, so much horrible things happened. Now, my father was never in any action. Uh, as you know, there are far more people who are involved in the supporting of, uh, uh, you know, navies and armies and air forces and all of that. And, and that's where he ended up. Uh, but instead of him being turned off by war, he was turned on by the military. And so that was the regiment in the household. Um, and also he was, he was not interested in being a father or a parent. He was just interested in order and he was just interested in things being the way they are. My brother became an artist and a musician. And so my father questioned his uh, virility and uh, as well as, uh, you know, whether he was truly a heterosexual or not, which um, (laughs) uh, I'm being very polite about how he actually went about it. But I was the youngest of my family. And um, 
I retreated into almost sort of a fantasy-based dream world. I uh, wasn't really well connected to anything. And then I discovered um, witchcraft, which was just starting to come out. And yeah. uh, so you had, so you had, um, you know, Gerald B. Gardner's two books out there. And, and actually, when I went to a museum, uh, the uh, fine, uh, what was it, the um, Field Museum in, in Chicago, um, where they actually have a U-boat. <laughs> no, actually, that's at the Science and Technology. But, but anyway, they they have a um, they, a big, huge bookstore there, and I and I bought a book by Gerald. Uh, uh, by old Gerald and uh, read it and was extremely disappointed because he was talking about how witchcraft was dying out. I got a copy of Discovery of Witchcraft and and that was even more um, uh, boring and interesting to me mm-hmm. at the time. Although now I have a copy of it and I actually kind of go back to it and read it from time to time because of some of the interesting stuff that's in it. So, I mean, I was just, I needed something and I felt very spiritual and I sensed things that were maybe preternatural or, or beyond other people's sensibilities, asked questions that no one should ask. Um, and so finally, when much more, when more information came, uh, into the fold, um, then I began to actually engage in studying and practicing it. And of course, you know, I picked up a book by Louise Hubner called Power Through Witchcraft. And and she said that, it, that if you're a man, you can't be a witch. You know, maybe you can be a warlock, but only female witches have power. Okay. But it was really the book uh, that was called, um, um, what was it? Uh, it was Lady Sheba's Book of Shadows. That was published by Llewellyn. And then Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft. Those two books came out. And between that and an incredibly powerful imagination steeped with all sorts of nonsense, I was I began to put together and cobble together, um, you know, a system of witchcraft that I could practice. And, and because I loved the earth, although I hated getting my hands dirty or <laughs> I mean, you figure it out. I don't know. I mean, maybe from an idealistic standpoint. But anyway, I continued to follow this path. And, and you know, I, I was 16 years old at the time. Right. And the headwinds against me when I basically said, I'm I'm a witch, I'm a teenage witch. You know, people in high school just uh, freaked out the the uh, all of the uh, um, people that I used to associate with who, who were into sports and all that, you know, freaked out. Mm-hmm. And even a couple of them came up and asked me to to put magic spells on women that they wanted to seduce and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but I just ran into and met a lot of really bizarre people from that point on. Um, in 19, uh, um, and it, but it wasn't until 1976, right after my 21st birthday, that I was initiated into an Alexandrian tradition of witchcraft run by a person named uh, uh, Bill Schnabelin, who called himself uh, Christopher Sin. Um, I don't right, know if that rings yeah. a bell with you, but oh, of course it does. Christopher yeah. Sin and the uh, Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. 
Yes. From Disney. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, yeah. Christopher Sin uh, ran two covens. Uh, they had two covens. They had a senior coven and a junior coven, and I was in the junior coven. But there was enough intelligent people in that group who were exploring the Golden Dawn tradition and lots of other stuff that suddenly I had available to me a lot more lore than I had previously. And because I was in the habit of cobbling stuff together, that's, that's what I did. I exactly. invented my own system. Uh, let me interrupt you here because sure. we are going into your own system a bit later because by what you were saying so far, um, a number of questions arose in me. I, I'd like to, to go a bit more in-depth. First of all, were you in a more rural or more urban surrounding as a kid? Was that What was your background there? Um, I grew up in a, um, a small town uh, uh, off the coast of Lake Michigan in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about right. maybe 90,000 people. Um, okay. Heavy industry, uh, in industries, right. such as, uh, you know, uh, the kinds of stuff that, you know, was very typical for that particular area. I mean, people. The rust you know, belt cold today, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, if you, yeah, if yeah. You, uh, you, you, you know, even in my time when I was in high school, you could go out and become a machinist and make quite a bit of money. Um, mm -hmm. uh, or you could, or you could be a, a fool and go to college like I did, <laughs> but you know, the universities, I mean, unless you got a degree in engineering or, you know, medicine or something like that, you know, um, if you got a degree like I did in English with a minor in linguistics, then you were kind of, you know, um, damned because not too long after uh, yeah. I graduated, the economy in that whole area fell apart. Exactly. Okay. So because I always find it interesting also the back to see the background of people where, where they came from. And you mentioned something about, I and mean, we could have a long discussion on that and this is not really the place to do that. But I just, uh, just one minute, maybe you mentioned the Catholic versus the Protestant background for becoming what you have become. Uh, I see where you go because of course the austerity of the Protestant church is not exactly inspiring uh, certain ritualistic, um, experiences. On the other hand, it's interesting that Catholicism with its dogma seems to be much more prohibitive and many, many more people. And that, that's for me one of the reasons that that's where I want to go. Why North America and England as well have become the hotspot of uh, nowadays of magic, of all the developments in, in, in witchcraft and magic. Um, not so much anymore Central Europe or continental Europe as it used to be in the origins. Do you, do you see a connection there? I think that if you look at prior to World War II or even prior to the First World War, Europe had a very rich occult community, both Eastern True. and Western traditions. True. And in many ways, we stand on their shoulders. Um, mm -hmm. Not a lot of um, that lore has been translated but, but I will say this, um, Catholicism, I have a special sort of relationship with Catholicism because of the, the um, insane high priest, uh, Bill Schnabelin of the uh, coven that I was in, was also into collecting holy orders, kind of on the right. same, in the same sort of mindset that, uh, you know, Michael, Michael Berteau of Chicago does. And that he, of course, was able to, uh, you know, get consecrated as a bishop, made a priest and then consecrated the bishop. And, and I picked up those lineages as well. 
And okay. they are um, uh, valid but illicit according to Rome. Of course, and, yeah. yeah. And I use a form of sacramental magic in what I do. I mean, um, I, I have a magical mass that I use, and, and the mass is an incredibly powerful system of magic to, to erect a, uh, an energized foundation to work many different forms of magic. And usually that's a mass in combination with a benediction. So those two rights. May I go a little bit more into sure. that? Because that's sure. something that always, it's, I wasn't really planning to do that, but it's always interesting in those interviews where it leads you with the person you have here. And because um, the term mass within uh, occultism, within esotericism, also but with Crowley and people like that, of course, very heavily present in the Gnostic, uh, in the monastic movements, etc. Michael Bertio, as we just mentioned, um, has always me having a strong Catholic background, but in my young age and which I dropped when I was about 15 to 18, like many of us did, um, it always recalls things that I don't understand how they go together with occultism and magic. Um, can you help people like me by explaining with why this link exists? Oh, yeah. Um, transubstantiation is a magical action. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, uh, when the priest is up on the altar and is just, just prior to him, um, uh, doing the, uh, uh was it, uh, uh, elevating and blowing his breath into the host and then doing the same with the wine, he is functioning as the Godhead Jesus. So he's assumed a Godhead and he is mm -hmm. basically blessed these, uh, Uh, the bread and the wine. And uh, now they are magical things because they contain the essence of the deity within it. And when you partake of it, you and that deity become one. But it need not be Jesus or, or the uh, monotheistic God. It could be any deity. For a deity okay. to bless with breath and hand, um, you know, bread and beer or wine, uh, food and drink of some kind, um, mm -hmm. goes all the way back to the ancient concepts of the sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice that was always really a part of uh, ancient religions, but it's also part of magic. If you look at the old grimoires, many of them talk about sacrificing animals. Yes. Um, but I think that, you know, much more powerful than that, you sacrifice something That that, that you have basically imbued as being part of the deity, and that act of magical transubstantiation turns it into something other than what it is. Right. And that something can be consumed by you, so that you may integrate yourself with that entity on one hand, or if it, what I can actually do is take fragments of that bread and put it around the magic circle and suddenly that magic circle is sacralized. It's empowered. Right. Um, as a magician, we are also priests. Uh, we're, we are also clerics. Um, we assume that role because we are channeling and projecting deity through our uh, conscious minds and, and our higher being. And, and each one of us, according to pagan perspectives, has a God within us. 
So yes. basically, you are making this happen by connecting to the God within you and man- manifesting a material blessing into the physical world. Now, there can't be anything more powerful than that. The benediction part of the Mass is where this um, host uh, or, or fragment of bread or, or whatever it is that you've blessed is presented um, right. and used to bless all of the um, uh, area of the temple. And so, you, you know, you take that host, you know, and, and you project its energy, you know, all the way around the periphery of the circle. And then you in, and then you ensconce it. And if you put particles of this host to the four watchtowers and maybe even the four angles, then you've got an, an incredibly charged and empowered area that is charged all the time, like a sacred yeah. ancient temple. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know mm-hmm. the, that a pagan state religion or a mystery cult would run. Exactly. Would you would you call that part of theurgy, or is it rather in the Hermetic terminology? Is it rather from the other side, from the Plotinian approach to Hermeticism, or is it rather Iamblichian approach to to Hermeticism that you that you uh, explain here? I would say that it's actually more archaic than that Mm -hmm. because there are people who offer uh, food and drink to the deities in, in what you could consider the most basic or fundamental sort of religious exchange. Yes. And then part of that, which is offered is taken back and consumed with the idea that you and the gods are one become one mm-hmm. and that, are one or become one what what uh, yeah become that's one. yeah are one become or, yeah. Are one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it is in a sense the, a way of materially and magically saying that the, that there is no distinction or difference between the gods and myself yes yes i may yes. live in a mortal body but for a moment um you know i i have another an impression and sensation of what life and existence is mm-hmm. so oh, thank you that i think that was helpful for many here yeah yeah because uh, it made it very clear what the term means and how, how it how it works actually yes absolutely the, the the catholic church has really downplayed the magic of the mass um mm-hmm. Because because of the fact that during during the saying of mass, thing, uh, things could be blessed by the prayer, by the parish priest, you know, to help for in, so to encourage a uh, bountiful harvest, uh, to bless animals, so to keep them away from disease, you know, your parish priest was basically functioning as a central magician in a community. Uh, ensuring the blessing of of uh, God and Jesus and the saints upon everything that they did, and like the course, shaman in all in other traditions. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. the shaman's a little bit different. Uh, there, yeah. in, in shaman cultures, there are also uh, uh, liturgicians, uh, people who do yes. the rituals and all that. The shaman is somebody who is on the very fringe. And so Absolutely. he's establishing the contact, basically, right? Yeah, well, he, he's actually the arbiter of the entire tribal culture. 
Uh, a shaman can change culture, can change practices, whereas someone who's performing the liturgies uh, of the tradition does not have that power. Absolutely. absolutely. But we as magicians yeah. have that power, <laughs> where a Catholic <laughs> priest does not. Um, he cannot, um, he does not have the authority to go exactly. and, and, yeah. and to write a new mass. But yeah. we as magicians, yeah. we can do that. And I have... I actually have a system of masses uh, that covers the, the, what I consider to be the four basic uh, magical cult philosophies. And that's, of course, um, Eros, Thanatos, Agape, mm. um, Eros, Thanatos, oh, and Thelema. Antelima, yes, yeah. The wi- so the will. For those who don't speak Greek, it's the will, it's death, it's charity, basically, and eros. Or well, friendship. eros is understood. Friendship, yes. yes. Everyone friendship, knows yes. Eros is. Yeah, eros is exactly. We don't have to translate that. Which brings me to a, a point because you have and you are using also a name Theresius, right? As your on your on your web page, it says Father Barabbas Theresius. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also use that in your email, if I if I may say that, um, uh, which is an old Greek seer, I believe. He yes. was a blind seer. Uh, what brought Tiresias into your realm? What 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 does he mean for you? Well, my name, my magical name, Barabbas Tiresias. So it's um, the combination that is your magical name. Yes. Yes. Were given mm-hmm. to me at two different instances when I was uh, a, a teenage witch. I may not have had a lot of books and materials. But what I did have was a connection to the deity, and that was to the goddess. And it was the goddess of witchcraft. So it was kind of like Hecate. Um, you know, I, when I would, uh, I could call and summon her to me if I was alone uh, in some desolate area of nature. Um, and she would come to me, and her voice would, would basically talk to me in my head. And it wasn't thoughts. It was something completely outside. And it would say things to me that were sometimes shocking and sometimes uh, uh, astounding. But she, uh, when we, the first time that I encountered and all that, she called me Barabbas because I was rebellious yeah. and because mm-hmm. I wouldn't listen to anybody and because I was always constantly um, uh, intellectually fighting with everybody and everything. Uh, I wouldn't accept anything. You know, this this is this was before I, I actually had a religious faith because I, I was at, at a mind that that intellectual faith is is basically a fraud. Mm-hmm. When I was mm-hmm. in, this is you know the thoughts of a 15, 16 year old kid. Sure, yeah, uh, of course. Um, and of course, my it probably came a little bit because of my father. The, the next name she gave me um, later on, you know, maybe within a year or so after that, was um, Tiresias. And she said, I'm, I'm going to call you Tiresias because I believe that it's important for you to know both your masculine and your feminine side, because you have a very strong feminine side, even though you're basically a cisgender male. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that you need to explore that, and 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 it is the feminine side of you in which your magic comes through the gateway of your heart. 
Yeah. And so because she taught me that, so I became Barabbas Tiresias. And of course, okay. Tiresias is a mouthful. So Frater Barabbas is, is what I chose for my pen name. Frater uh, being kind of like, you know, the ceremonial magical sort of Frater. But on the other hand, it just means brother. So I'm just brother exactly. Barabbas. Exactly, of course. You know, yeah, brother, brother. exactly. Yeah. You, you <laughs> could invite me out to have a beer and all that, and, and I probably wouldn't <laughs> splash it in your face. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's an interesting point you're raising here because uh, this frater is very common in magical communities, of course, and it's often forgotten that it's just being brother, as you say. It's it's a very, a very close connection that you can have to that frater. And that's the way that I write too. I write as if I'm having a chat with you. Absolutely. I, so I don't want to use really big words, or if I do, to basically define them. And, and, and so I want to have a very down-to-earth discussion to people about various types of things, such as, you know, like why uh, in the Book of Shadows there isn't any uh, conjuring uh, mechanism or methodology. Uh, and mm. that's a huge omission. And, you know, and, and another huge omission is the variations on the energy theory of magic. You know, con mm -hmm. constructs. And these are things that I discovered uh, and, and developed and built up myself without really much of any kind of outside influence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it came from inside. In, it was in you. It was artistic. Artistic. Okay. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. It was imagination. It was, uh, mm -hmm. um, the, and to, to work this kind of uh, magical methodology and approach to things, you cannot be a hidebound traditionalist because you're constantly going to be getting inputs and inspirations that go totally against this or, or don't fit into any of this. Absolutely. Um, and, and here we are in exactly something that I believe um, is very typical for your magic and for the type of magic you describe also in your books. It is not something that follows uh, uh, a school, but it it tries to dialectically synthesize um, new ideas, new path, very personal paths, and you leave also a leeway for people to have their own personal way of doing things in your writings, which I find fascinating and which I have always found fascinating many years back when I first discovered your books. So maybe, um, maybe let's enter into that a little bit. Why? Well, let's carry on from where you took off. You said you, well, you had the Alexandrian initiation and then came in contact with ceremonial magic. What happened then in your life? What brought you on the path of being that, you like the word syncretic or is that, is that something that you don't like? As well, syncretism and, and, and my syncretism and, and other occultists, uh, that I have met, um, It comes from being in a space of a lack of information material. I mean, right now we are awash in mm. material and information. There are grimoires that are being published that that didn't that, that may have been mentioned in some church document or something like that, but but no one had access to them. Yes. Um, so my syncretism was born out of the fact that 
that I had bits and pieces, uh, maybe even a little bit of a skeletal structure. But if I was going to fill that out, I had to basically develop it myself. And yeah. develop, what you do is you come up with some ideas, you formalize it, you develop it, formalize it, experiment with it, and then refine it over time. And what happens is you is that you may start out with uh, an approach that, uh, you know, that, that cobbles together various ritual spell structures to create um, uh, a larger whole. Well, it's why I refer to magical uh, uh, events as workings, because they will consist yeah. of multiple rituals. This mm-hmm. ritual will do this, and then on top of that, this ritual will do that, and then on top of that. But you're That's, by the way, a term I really like, workings. I really like that term because, as you just explained it, it's exactly how it, to me, feels right. when I do ritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the energy structures that I discovered very early on, um, such as the vortex, and we can talk just a little bit about how I came up with the concept of a vortex. But I basically discovered that a vortex, unlike any other magical structure in a circle, contains whatever is in it. And that allows you to, um, you cannot banish a vortex, you can only seal it. And then you come back later to it and you unseal it, and then you can add more elements to it and then seal it until you finally get to an apex where you will basically do your high level exteriorization and everything that you have assembled and collected together will fuse into a whole and will basically uh, expand outwardly and impact the material world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, when I, when I first started uh, witchcraft a long time ago, you know, they talked about something called a cone of power. And a cone of power is nothing more than um, the witches dance with, within a confined circle area, defined circle area, and that the people are, are, are uh, arrayed in masculine and feminine uh, order. And it is a highly energized uh, exercise. Um, and usually the high priestess is standing in the center and, and everyone goes around in the circle faster and faster chanting as they do so. And then they drop down mm-hmm. and the high priestess takes that energy up because she's standing in the center with a sword. She has the fulcrum of that energy focused on mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that particular point, the energy is a cone and it just, you know, fills up that uh, chamber or, or uh, room or wherever you happen to be doing the magic. If you're doing it in a grove, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's within, it, you know, the dome of the grove, as it were. Sure. Uh, so that's the first phase. And then the second phase is that you imprint that energy with your desires. And then after that, there is a second uh, circle dance. And, and of course, this is going DSL sunwise around the circle. Um, there's a second dance, and this one uh, is even more intense than the second one, except this is the one where all the energy is put into it and it's then released by the high priestess, who instead of having the sword pointed up, she points it out. 
out, in, exactly. outside of the magic circle and into the material world where that word mm-hmm. word basically functions like a bolt going out and, and hitting uh, the target or targets that the people have put and imprinted into that energy. Well, it's a very masculine energy. It, it's really based upon the uh, masculine erotic um, pattern uh, of, uh, of excitation and ultimate ejaculation. Yeah, and, sure. and so it's a very masculine sort of energy. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of thought to myself at this young age, well, what would happen if you wanted to create the opposite sort of energy? You know, what would you do? if you wanted to have a f- the feminine based energy. And so that's where I came up with the concept of the vortex. the vortex instead of the energy being focalized in the outer periphery of the magic circle and not being allowed to join or fuse. What I did was I would take the energy um, and I would dr- uh, basically draw a crossroads. So you've got this crossroad structure, the watchtowers, instead of, you know, being polarized are fused together into the center of the circle. And then you go counterclockwise around and around until you get to the center and then you project the energy down. And that uh, why counterclockwise? What is the, the reason for the counterclockwise movement here? Well, the, we were going clockwise in order to generate the masculine energy. Okay, so yeah, I just wanted to be sure. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. But counterclockwise okay. is represents the sinister circuit, the left exactly. hand uh, path, yeah. as it were. That's why I was and, asking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there were witches who said, oh, don't go with her shins. Don't, you know, it's yeah. bad. And, you know, always go <laughs> yeah, 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 sunwise yeah. around. It's like, nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's there, if it's an option, try it and see what happens, which is Definitely. always sort of the uh, Barabbasian sort of mindset that I've always had. Of like, hey, if there's other options, try them and see what happens. <laughs> um, so, at any rate, so that came up with the four texts. Then, after that, the um, if you have a square within the circle, and the uh, and the uh, sides of the square are joined up to a point, creating an apex, you have a pyramid, mm-hmm. and the, you have a pyramid within the circle, and that is um, what the pyra- what the cone um, um, of power became for me. It became a pyramid of power. Okay. okay. I use and and when you visualize this, you see it as prismatic, triangular shapes of energy. And because mm-hmm. I've trained myself over many years, I can see these lines of force. And when I draw them, I can see them. When I draw a pentagram in the magic circle, I can see the pentagram illuminated, you know, for a period of time in that particular corner or point where I've drawn it. Um, the way in which you learn to do that is to take, uh, you know, a burning uh, uh, stick of insects, in, uh, incense and just kind of move it around. Uh, mm-hmm. It probably also helped that I when in my youth. I took a fair amount of LSD. So, you know, there was sort of permanent <laughs> yeah. tracers built into my visioning systems. Age of Aquarius. What can I say? <laughs> yes. Um, hallucinogens are, are really wonderful. Um, but if you're going to work magic, work magic. If you're going to uh, basically have a hallucination, then have a hallucination. Mm. Don't try and do both of them. Although Mix I them have up. Exactly. tried that, but it wasn't particularly very effective. Can be dangerous, can't it? 
Um, I don't know. I mean, taking drugs is always dangerous depending always, upon your sure. health circumstances. Sure. Um, some people. I'm more meant towards the result of the magic. It can be dangerous. Um. Well. It depends. There are moments when you want to open up the visionary experience to a maximum extent mm. and other times when you need to focus. But when I work magic, I have a semi trance that's going. Um, it allows me to focus on things. You know, uh, it allows mm -hmm. me to read off a script if I've got a complex ritual and, and there's and, and if you've got a complex ritual, you'd have to recite it and practice it for quite a while before you were able to completely memorize it perfectly. Sure. And if you have assumed the Godhead in your magic, such as I propose to do, then it doesn't matter if you make a mistake because then that's part of the magic. Right, right, and, right. And that's the surprise of magic is magic is wiggly. It's not something that you can put your finger on and define it. It, it varies. It constantly changes. It's very mercurial mm -hmm. in that sort of way. I didn't promise too much, did I? Yeah, well, I thought that story about the vortex, fascinating. I Honestly, it was new to me also. The crossroads from the Wards of Tower, well, stuff like that. Learning every day here on the podcast, and it's great to be able to learn even after 40-ish years of practice. Glad about that. We should all do that, shouldn't we? Okay, so now to some music, I promised. Uh, Aquarian music, well, I call it that way. Um, the next piece uh, we're going to hear is, again, not the surprise I have here. It will be piece number three, the third music piece. The next piece is also called Age of Aquarius, but it's by Villagers of Joannina City. Villagers of, or Joannina, I, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce that, probably Ioannina, because it's from a band from Greece. The Villagers of Ioannina City is the name of a Greek a rock band, and uh, this uh, is a, a recording of the title song of their, of their album they produced, which by the same name, Age of Aquarius. So nothing to do with the fifth dimension yet. Um, so it's Age of Aquarius by the villagers of Ioannina City. And um, after that, we return for the fascinating talk with our friend Frater Barabbas. And at the end, at the end of the interview, well, yes, there is finally what you have been waiting for we will let the sunshine in and it will be aquarius it will be a cover version because as i said the original version is probably a problem with copyright so um a live cover version a great live cover version from a group who certain people a band um coming from my neighboring country here, Slovenia. And in Slovenia, they, they are called Faustur. Faustur, I don't know what exactly that means. And they will do the original Aquarius in a live performance, a live cover performance of 50, the Fifth Dimensions. Great piece. Right, so stay tuned till the end. I think it's always worth it but especially here today with the music and afterwards i will of course tell you more about next week's show about number 20 of season eight so once again villagers of Ioannina city age of aquarius to start with 
Then 38 more minutes of a great interview with Frater Barabbas. And then let the sunshine in, the age of Aquarius, a live cover version by Faustur from Slovenia with some applause at the end. Okay, and I'll return after that for the intro to next week.
Well, Fred Ramos, we we have never we never spoke before we did this interview, but I read your books and I read your blog, as I said, and um, also even when we exchanged via email a few weeks before this interview to fix the date and postpone it because I wasn't available anymore. And thank you for being so flexible, by the way. Um, um, but it was always very both your emails and your writings always very clear very down to earth very precise in a in a positive way not a not a dry and cold way but a, it, it, and like you now explained the vortex for example or the other the ritual of of the, the masculine part of the riddle the way you say that it is very tangible very clear very very precise but without being dry right is that just a talent of yours or is that something that came to you through your work and like a special gift that you are here to to tell others how to do it i'm a capricorn <laughs> okay that explains everything <laughs> capricorn with cancer rising and moon in gemini right 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 uh Everyone has their unique characteristics and all of that. Um, I, when I was young, I wanted to be an actor. Yeah, I, okay. Every, mm -hmm. You know, people wanted to be rock stars. I wanted to be in theater. And I mm -hmm. sucked at it. <laughs> because <laughs> it was difficult for me to discipline my mind into, um, believe it or not, discipline my mind so that I would be able to... Uh, to memorize scripts, uh, to memorize, you know, uh, what my part was. I was mm -hmm. not really very good at that. And other people who were all students could just basically read something very briefly a few times and they'd have it memorized. Yeah. And, and I really envied them in, in having that. But um, so I decided also in my relationships with people, I noticed the people who had really good acting abilities were really good at deceit and really good at lying, really good at selling something they didn't believe in. And I really stink at that. <laughs> so yeah. what I ended up deciding to do because I had some real embarrassing uh, social uh, occurrences when I tried to be something that I wasn't was just to be what I was. And as an old man now, there isn't anything else I can be, you know. And so there are, there are virtues in being yourself. And, and there's also, you know, uh, weaknesses. There's also uh, uh, imperfections, um, you know. And, and, and everyone is a complete package in terms of that. But as far as, you know, yeah. precision and all of that, I mean, My job is in IT. I work with computers. I work with databases. Okay. I, I, my object uh, in my life is to look for patterns and data. I, mm -hmm. And I tend to approach things in a very structured fashion and a very ordered fashion. So that's just my personality. Right, um, right, right. But one of the things that I can impart to other people is, is to allow yourself to experience something. Be open to it. Be open to all possibilities. When you work magic, let's say to get a new job or, or or to, or or to find some sort of advancement, or, or even you know to uh, uh, become involved with uh, you know uh, the kind of love object of of your desires, you approach these things honestly, 
with an open mind and open to all possibilities. Mm-hmm. And if you are, if you have worked magic for a period of time, you will understand that there's a process that's operating in your life. And that process is there to teach you, to guide you, and to help you if you allow it to. If you be, if you're stubborn, if you are, uh, you know, uh, for some reason standing against yourself by not listening to yourself, I think that you will come to uh, a great deal of uh, of tragedy and unhappiness. Um, it's when you learn to listen to yourself, listen to your own internal feelings, your impressions, and allow them to gently take you someplace, but not to be completely nuts about it, you know, to be completely insane, but to look at everything also with a certain amount of skepticism and doubt, but also being open and accepting. So you've got those two things going on at the same time, and they should be, you know, balanced against each other. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm an emotional based person. So there are times when people can take advantage of me and, you know, I don't want to name any names, but there was a head of a golden dawn organization who really did a number on me and who brought me kind of in his court as it were. And so I in my blogs, I was sometimes defending him when actually he, he was, um, um, a very sick person who really was in many ways kind of a fraud. Yeah. And he was perpetuating a fraud on a lot of occultists and actually doing a fair amount of damage to people. I, I would talk to ex members of his, of his, uh, order and all of that. And, and they, and, and a lot of them were seriously psychologically damaged. They allowed that to happen on one hand, but the idea of masters uh, or secret chiefs or somebody out there who's going to knock on your door someday and say, we, we have all the, the um, answers to your uh, uh, to what you're searching for and all of that is is the true opiate of the masses. And that is something mm-hmm. that will um, that can usually uh, affect almost anybody. And yeah. it has affected me. <laughs> I see. I see. Well, thank you for being so so open about that. It's, uh, you know who I'm uh, talking about, don't you? I, I think I think I know who you are. I think most of people listening to this podcast will know who you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. we don't. We don't absolutely. need to mention his name. No, I, I don't think so. I don't okay. think it's necessary. I'll go, we shouldn't I'll go mention that. names that will only damage people. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe you you can give the initials if you want. Maybe that that would be but, but enough if you want. If you feel that's necessary, yes, absolutely. <laughs> talking about the same person. Yeah. We are talking about the same person. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, a tragedy there because it also damaged not only. Uh, it also damaged the order to a great extent. I, 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 I have the impression. So, well, well, I actually fault some of the people on the other side of that argument as well, mm. because there was because it became sort of a phallic sword fight between um, you know ego-driven magicians, and yeah, yeah, it really ended up turning everybody off, and it's one of the reasons why I, I. I I've come to the conclusion that that organizations like that um, that are hierarchical and that the uh, 
the chiefs who run these organizations who are answerable to no one, that there's no checks and balances or no accountability. It's the worst kind of organization uh, for magicians to belong to. Absolutely. Um, if you look at the, um, uh, if you, if you look at, um, you know, fraternal, uh, I don't call them mystical orders, you know, like the Masons, your blue lodge is so effective because it is a democracy. And even in the midst of Europe, when you had all sorts of, um, non-democratic type uh, social situations going on in within the Masonic temple, everyone was equal. No one yeah. had greater yeah. authority. The, uh, the leaders of that uh, blue lodge were rotated every year. Yes. Um, yes. People went through the various chairs until they finally became master. Um, you you didn't have a master of the temple who was who chose himself to be master for and some would reason. stay there in perpetuity exactly uh, and yeah, and, yeah. and we're in that situation and no one could question them or or challenge them mm. or uh, and if they did they would be tossed out and of course that also meant that, that individual who usually was a uh, cisgender male <laughs> um, allowed yeah. him to take advantage of any females who were uh, uh, curious and or foolish enough to get involved and uh, and get yes. engaged with that organization. And mm. uh, I saw that happening uh, in America in the OTO back in the um, in the in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, it, it is no longer a case. They did a real major house cleaning. I think they did. Yes. But you had, you know, <clears throat> the uh, the head ceremonial magician uh, in that town, you know, uh, who may have also been a biker, who knows, uh, you know, he would basically be the, uh, uh, the lodge master. And then you'd have his gang who, who would, uh, you know, be involved in it. And some of them yeah. were there to really learn and, and to, and to understand and, and to realize something. And others were there just to basically take advantage of whatever it is they could get for themselves. And unfortunately, yeah, yeah, it creates yeah. a toxic uh, environment. I think Absolutely. that's why we created the ESSG, the Egregora Santa Stella Nostica, um, and, um, which is probably terrible Latin. But at any rate, um, <laughs> it, it is a, um, an organization that is only, it's like a blue lodge. It's only, uh, each temple is fully autonomous. Mm. Um you have a body of lore in which you work with and you can explore and mutate and rewrite and do whatever you want with it. Um, you can experiment as a group. You should also work magic as an individual um, so that you have both areas pretty much covered. And the, uh, the leadership has changed out. Every right. year. Did you, did you personally create that, that order or is it, was it part, uh, partly you or how, how did that come into being? I had a group of about two or three people when I was living in Kansas City, Missouri, who uh, mm -hmm. basically approached me and wanted me to formulate a magical order. And, and I had a whole bunch of lore and they saw all this lore and they were just like, wow, this guy's got a real lot of lore and all of that. I had to rewrite all that lore so that they could use it as a group with a group mm -hmm. identifier, an egregore, as it were. 
Yeah. But there, there were more people involved than I, um, especially in creating the bylaws and also the most important instrument. And that is that, is that as a body, we uh, uh, function by consensus. And right. by consensus, it means that we basically um, would offer up decisions or directions and, and things that we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, uh, if uh, a majority of people accepted that and no one uh, was opposed, see, that's the point, um, you know, no one is, is opposed to it, so that's okay. Um then you can go ahead with it. But if one person opposes it, then you can't. Then you've got to figure out something else to do. And sometimes that can create a very chaotic type of situation. But if you've got, you know, just several people and all of that, then I think it's okay. It works out. Right. Right. Because, I mean, that that's a big question I, I always have is how... Um, How important is it to be in a group? How important is the egregore? Is the solitary magician, uh, does he have the same or he or she the same validity, the same possibilities as somebody who works in a group? How do you see that in general? Do you need both to be full flesh, so to speak? Or, or no. how, how do you see that? No, you don't need both. Um, <clears throat> you need to be dedicated Uh, to one, and these really successful magical groups happen. They're just sort of a social phenomenon. They exist for a few years or less. a few years, yes, right and, right, and, right, and then they go, and they usually come together for a reason to probably assist mm -hmm. um, some of the people or all of the people within that organization to achieve some sort of a higher level than what they could have, and and then and then these organizations fragment and fall apart. And it, right. it's just a normal thing, you know, to look at, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the Golden Dawn uh, uh, breaking apart as such a, a, a tragic thing. No, it wasn't tragic because of, of all the incredible stuff that came out of it after it broke up it was actually more important than what they had when they were together yeah. as an organization. Not to mention the fact we wouldn't have any Golden Dawn material today if Riccardi hadn't decided to publish it. <laughs> True, absolutely. So, do you believe in self-initiation? Not necessarily yes. Golden Dawn, but in general, yes. Trans, um, transformational initiation is is the real name of the game. You can you can receive an initiation into a magical order, and it can have zero effect on you. Mm -hmm. It depends mm -hmm. on how open you are, where you are, and what mindset you're in. Um, it confers upon you an identity as well as a membership. It does not confer upon you um, insight and enlightenment. Yeah. That you have to do on your own. So an organization can be someplace. You've got to have some kind of peer group when you're working magic because you need to have a group of people that you can say, well, I'm thinking about doing this. And then they can say to you, well, I think that's kind of nuts. <laughs> you, you know, because because you can be led astray by your own enthusiasm and your own imagination. Sure. So you do need to have some people who can talk to you and all that. Um, on the other hand, there are, there are groups out there on the Internet and all that that, you know, who actually purge members who have opposing beliefs and ideas. Yes. And that's, you know, I, I don't particularly like 
or or work with that either but yes you can self-initiate in fact you you know that's the whole process you will work magic you will gauge and triggered events will happen to you that will have a profound effect on you and whether you belong to a magical organization or not that is the pathway to um, magical enlightenment Mm -hmm. Um, There is no other path. It cannot be conferred upon you by someone outside of you. It's between you and the God in your head. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Well, thank you for saying that. Say it again, because it's so important. It's really, yeah, being a member of an order doesn't initiate you. That's not the point. Yes, absolutely. Your own work is what actually brings you to that point. So if you belong to a magical order, and, and all the only magic that you work is within when that group gets together, then you'll actually regress. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, that's, that's, uh, that's exactly a point. And uh, thank you for making that point. Um, what would that's a question I sometimes ask my guests here. Um, I think this is the moment for it. Um, when a young person listens to us and would like to to find his own path as a freshman, so to speak, as a, as a somebody interested and keen and a searcher, but not yet not yet having found their their path, what would you? How would you counsel such a person? What would you think he or she should do? What would be those first steps that can lead him or her to the on their particular own path oh <laughs> there's good one eh? <laughs> there's so many places where you can start i mean I've, I've even known young people who picked up the necronomicon and started playing with that i mean i have a theory and that is you've got you've got to start somewhere mm. and if you start with something that later on you would find embarrassing um You've got to start somewhere. So that's the key. You've got to start. You, If you are looking for something, that means that you're a seeker. If you are a seeker, then you should turn, uh, leave no stone unturned. Mm-hmm. You should investigate stuff. But I would say the first thing that you need to know and need to learn is meditation. Um, that would probably be the really good place because you need to yeah. learn how to um how to alter and control your, your uh, conscious states, uh, breath control with that, um, you know, uh, energy working that goes along with that would probably be something really good to do. Um, but uh, yeah, meditation, um, also beginning to take a very esoteric look at all spirituality and, and basically getting rid of a lot of dogma, a lot of uh, scurrilous beliefs or beliefs based upon your childhood mm-hmm. religion. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes we are indoctrinated and that indoctrination can be very much a uh, barrier to actually achieve anything. So you have to break outside of those barriers You and you need to experiment and be open. Um, yes. But meditation is the very first step. Meditation will lead to all sorts of things and it'll determine whether or not you are a mystic or a magician. Yeah. But, you know, probably the, one of the easiest thing, things to do is to uh, take the mindfulness, um, what is it, the MS uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction um, course. Um, it's eight weeks. 
uh, it's actually a precursor to learning Zen, which I'm a big fan of. I'm, I practice, okay. I try to practice Zen. Um, but yeah, just being able to become aware, they, they've got uh, something they call the body scan that is just really, really helpful and useful. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the whole mindfulness is probably a good place to start. Meditation is a good place to start. And then, and then basically um, talk to people, um, meet different people and just kind of uh, go on the Internet and look around but be skeptical of just about anything yes, and everything. Anything, Someone yeah. comes up to you and says, ah, yeah. Uh, Cause I once had a friend of mine who called me out of bed at 2 a.m. in the morning uh, to go and meet him at a uh, all night uh, uh, restaurant. And he basically completely gone uh, insane. He was no longer functional in, in this reality. Mm-hmm. And so I came to this uh, restaurant to see him and all that 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm like, ah, and he said to me, Brian, he says, I, I have achieved godhood and I'm going to deliver you to you everything that you've been searching for for your entire life. Ooh. And I and I looked at him and said, nah, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would take away from me the joy of the journey. And, and in many ways, this journey that starts that can usually start at a, at a young age, but also an older age is the is the, what I would call the sorcerer's compensation. It is the journey itself, the and the remarkable people that you will meet on that journey, and the remarkable uh, things that you'll experience on that journey. Um, so, I mean, that's that's how I would kind of approach all of this, and that yeah, is just yeah. to use your imagination, use your creativity, but doubt everything. And, right. and especially Absolutely. the baloney that people will try and and, uh, and, and sell you. If someone's <laughs> yeah. got the solution and wants to sell it to you for money, that ain't the solution. Absolutely. I, I remember you, you mentioned uh, Gardner, of course, which at the time was uh, those books that were available among those rare books that were available on the subject of witchcraft. And I started up, I'm about your generation, about the same age we are. Um, and I started with Carlos Castaneda, of course, uh, in, in a bit of a different path. And But still, we both found our way. You know? yep. <laughs> so there is no wrong, there is no wrong start in a way, because it brought me on a path and when as you say when you are skeptical and when you are thinking curiously and 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 try to find a way you you will end up getting there right um hopefully um (laughs) there are some people who did uh um there are some people who who met Carlos Castaneda, who followed them, and who came to a tragic end. Yeah, sure. Well, I was far away, and we don't have Mescalino in Europe at the time anyway. So, but I, I was talking about reading the books, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can, I read them too, and I was like, yeah, this is really cool. And after the, yeah, exactly. after the fourth book, I was like... What? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. No, after book two and three, it gets heavy. But um, uh, well, thinking about sitting in that in the courtyard for hours and staring at one thing, it was the first thing 
I, I got into touch with, you know, so I didn't do it myself, but I thought, hmm, interesting. <laughs> Are you familiar with um, an author teacher named T. Lapsing Rampa? Just by name, but I, I, I'm not familiar with his writings. So well, he was a complete fraud, but he had a book called You Forever that actually had a whole bunch of techniques for learning how to, uh, how to see psychically and, and hear and all of that. And I actually followed all of those. I mean, when I was a mm-hmm. teenager, there really wasn't a whole lot sure. around that was available. And it well, worked. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Exactly. That's what I meant. I mean, it wasn't a whole little round and you were happy to get that. And, uh, well, I, I followed shamanism for a few years. It's no longer my, my school, but I, it, it brought me into, into what, what I practice today, basically. How did you come... And I have to ask you that question because you say it yourself in your blog and on your page, uh, on your homepage. Um, what's for you the difference between ceremonial magic and ritual magic? Uh, <laughs> ceremonial magic, you, you brought it. Well, you were brought in by Golden Dawn acquaintances, etc. And what is the difference for you between the two? Well, ceremonial magic, um, classical ceremonial magic, and we're talking about renaissance ceremonial magic okay or let's so let's say up into the uh, 20th century so that kind of ceremonial magic because i don't want to mix it up with antiquity um was christian or jewish based and and of course there's a whole area of islamic based magic that we don't really know much of anything about Mm -hmm. us uh, people who speak european languages and and not arabic Um, so you were Christian and the stages that you went through to perform an evocation required, um, purification and an abasement, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking about your sins and, and asking God for forgiveness. And so what you were trying to do is actually get into a state of mind in which you were at least to some degree pure enough to approach the deity and to temporarily use his powers to make something happen because you know yeah. the various goetic demons and all that would just basically make a mockery sure. of, of a human being who was not uh, vested by their uh, creator with the powers to command spirits yeah um and in addition to that there's the mindset of and, and, and this is kind of also in Catholicism, but Protestantism has some of that as well. And that is that you must, when you perform a ritual, must be performed perfectly. So the combination that you have to approach the deity and be pure enough to be able to, uh, um, you know, temporarily abrogate the powers of the deity and that you, and that you had to have a ritual that had little or no mistakes in it whatsoever, that's the mindset of ceremonial magic. And you can yeah. see that that went into the Golden Dawn as well. Sure. But as a witch, um, the very precursor to working any kind of magic was assumption of the Godhead. And so if you assume the Godhead and, and you became um, temporarily the deity, and it didn't matter if you were, you know, um, having sex with your neighbor's wife or something like that. I mean, the God yeah. 
either the, the, the god, god wouldn't would care <laughs> either wouldn't care or would actually kind of say yeah yeah that's yeah right. <laughs> um, so you know there wasn't this need for for purity there was just a need for sanity for focus for uh, mm. for honesty intention and, and yeah, yeah, yeah so witches would tend to um, you know work their magic you know, with the Godhead assumed in some fashion, whether it was the goddess and, and, or whether it was the God. Um, and uh, you can, in that kind of situation, so there's no, so you're not actually potentially sinning by working magic. And in the monotheistic systems, for you to act as, temporarily as God is basically uh, yeah. a mortal sin. So working magic and not being a consecrated priest or a consecrated bishop or an ordained priest is, you know, considered yeah, bad sure. form, very bad yeah. form. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and, you know, using that magic to then evoke a demon to, you know, so that you could have sex with your neighbor's wife. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like, OK, but you just went through this whole process of becoming pure and, and so you could become <laughs> one with God, and now you're 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 basically uh, digging up gold and, and finding treasure, or seducing your neighbor's wife, or doing this all this other stuff, which these demons are supposed to be really good at doing, and yet you're supposed <laughs> to remain maintain this alignment to uh, the Christian God. I just find that really sort of, that mindset really kind of um, uh, hypocritical. Hypocritical, yes, absolutely, and, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And but yet, you know, you know, some people will approach the grimoires with an what I would say almost a, a pre-Christian sort of mindset. And for them, I think that they're doing it right. Okay. But for those people who approach it exactly the way that it was approached in the Renaissance times, I think. And this was continued on into the golden dawn and the sort of, you know, hierarchical relationship with deity. Well, Victorian, Victorian age, right? Exactly. Yeah. Assuming the Godhead allows you the freedom to be able to do anything. Anything that you do when you've assumed the Godhead is magical. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yeah. you have a tight script that needs to be done perfectly and you have to purify yourself to be one with God momentarily so you can do this the two sorts of different approaches are radically different from each other and so i distinguish ceremonial magic yeah. is 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 uh, particularly for monotheists um is to help them deal with a guilty conscience and uh ritual magic is for uh, pagans and people who are, are no longer really monotheists anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a difference. So let's just put it clear. I think you, 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 you just made a little slip. Yeah, you said twice ritual magic. So ceremonial magic is for monotheists and ritual magic for pagans. Just to sum it up, right? Yes. I, I think you you said twice ritual magic. I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, okay. Yes, yes, absolutely. Here again, we might be in, in the midst of the problem, but uh, between Iamblichus and Plotina, I mentioned before, because I think the same distinction applies there. Absolutely. Um, yes, you wanted to say something. <laughs> um, well... Uh, I don't know. I, 
there's some people who might think that that definition is artificial or that it's sort of scholastic, but you know, I, well, the people who are the most, definition you define, don't you? <laughs> but the people I have the most problems with are the people who feel that you, that you have to follow what's written, that you have to yeah. Uh, yeah. obey the tradition. Um, you have to, uh, that, that you are not allowed to experiment. You are not allowed to go outside the boundaries. It's like getting a coloring book and you have to color, you know, everything that, that is outlined and you cannot color anything outside of, yeah. of the outline yeah. and all that. And I just, the, they and I just are constantly smashing up against each other to such an extent that I just became less involved with the uh, uh, occult community as a whole and, and mm. got less mm. and less involved in the various arguments that were going on because I felt that they were that they didn't make any sense. They were irrelevant. No, um, they're void. As far exactly. As, as far as the fact that you didn't hear from me and I didn't write any blogs for a while, we can blame corporate America for that because for two to three years, I was involved in a project that ate up almost all of my time. And I had to do a lot of traveling. And, mm -hmm. um, and in the end, I basically got the shaft. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. Which is which is which is the kind of um, capitalistic uh, mindset? I mean, that uh, we are subjected to that, that we have to uh, kowtow to. I mean, it basically ate up all my time and all that. Uh, I'm in a situation now where that is not happening. Where if I take time off. No one's calling me. No one's giving me crap about, uh, you know, taking time off. Um, no one, you know, I can have my weekends free. I mean, all of that was just subject to a complete uh, change. And so there wasn't any time for me to write it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for us that you're back with, with writing. Yeah. Um, Father Brabus, we are we have already run out of time, but I have one last question I have to ask you because I wrote it down and I promised myself to ask <laughs> it uh, concerning one of your latest blog entries. And um, it kind of sums, not sums up, but rounds up nicely because you began that talk by saying you were different from the others, right? You were, you as a youth, you were, you were, you didn't fit in, in, into, into your friend's gangs etc and that blog entry is called strange and sinister qualities of otherness um, and you wrote that back uh, i think about a month ago and i found it a fascinating piece and i hope many people will now rush and go and read it when we talk about it but could you just briefly in two or three minutes which we can add to this show um could you just um define otherness and and what you mean by that so just to tease a little bit uh, on that on that blog entry which i've really found fascinating um there are two kinds of otherness there's the otherness that we use to pre to be prejudiced to basically um to deny other people their humanity and their dignity and, and that can even go to animals, you know, being cruel to animals yeah. or stuff like that. And that kind of otherness is pernicious. And I find it uh, a wicked habit amongst human beings to do that. And I try myself not to do that. The other kind of otherness is the shiver that you get up your spine when, when you experience something that is undefinable and magic 
if it's done correctly, is full of otherness. You could call it uh, paranormal. You can call it preternatural. Um, I call it things that cause my hair to stand up on my head or, or, or to get that tingle going up and down your spine. It, and if you don't, if you work magic and you never feel that, then then I question whether or not you are really working real magic. There should be things that surprise you. There should be things that astound you. And there should be things that cause you to feel uh, almost slightly frightened um, or, or let's say just aware of that things are not quite the way that you thought they were. Uh, the rules are... Uh, a lot flat more flexible or don't exist at all and suddenly you are naked in this uh, reality and all of your assumptions are basically you know ripped away from you and that's the kind of otherness that i think is a really good thing it, it is the kind of otherness that people are most likely to be afraid of it's the reason why people who practice the occult and magic and, and witchcraft are feared um or basically become a cipher for other people's imaginations or, or prejudice. So, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a, to me, a really uh, fascinating subject. And, and I've been cooking on that one for a while. And so I basically put it out there. Yeah, thank you for doing that. And I think what you said about it was just a perfect final word for our talk as well. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Sure. It was a great talk. And uh, well, good luck with all your upcoming projects. I think there's a new book on the horizon for this with Slavellan for this for this fall, right? Uh, actually, the the latest book out of the Four Witches series there's uh, yes. is called going to be called Talismanic Magic for Witches. Exactly. It is the definitive work on talisman. And in fact, the latest blog that I put out there, I think maybe yesterday, yes, covers yes. a little bit of that. The idea uh -huh. of what a talisman is and that it's a kind of charm or magic that runs perpetually. So long as you occasionally keep conscious connection with it. Yes. You can, have, you can so build up a battery of spells and they'll just continue to run. Absolutely. And we will be on the lookout for that book. And as you just said yesterday, of course, this will be published only on July 10th. So it's a week back then. Um, but I'll make sure that there's a link to the blog on the website, on the show notes for this talk. And so people can go there and have a look. And if on February of next year, that's when the book on talismans will come out. Okay, great. So we'll, we'll be on the lookout for that. And why not making another talk when it's out there? I would love it. Okay, great. Thank you, Father Barabbas. Have a good rest of your day and, um, well, speak soon, Hope. Yes, and have a good evening. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
what a fascinating piece of music still it is after so many years wonderful fifth dimensions aquarius let the sunshine in but in a live cover interpretation by Fausch Dur, a Slovenian 30-piece group who did that in a concert. And I think it's really just as fascinating as the original. It makes us feel younger again. Well, actually, people of my age and of Frater Barabbas' age, of course. Frater Barabbas, who was our guest here today. And thank you so much for that fascinating lovely talk with him um uh, thank you for the brothers for for your time and for that um i'm sure my people here enjoyed and i hope you will return next week uh, because next week there will be of course another show and that will be number 20 episode 20 of season eight um light bringers of the north is a book that is going to be released if all goes well, I believe in this coming week, between now and our next show. And already on next Sunday, I will bring you an interview with one of its authors, with Vesa Iti from Finland, well, off the north. But beware, it's not about Norse magic, not at all. It's about Finland, about magic in Finland. A fascinating story, something you wouldn't expect, uh, how much it's going on there in that country. On the north of Europe, a country I personally really adore and their people. I'm not making that up. It's true. So um, come back next week for the Lightbringers of the North, Vesaiti, and uh, an interview with him. Okay. Well, that was it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show just as much as I did making it. Um, once again, if you feel... You should do that, and you probably should feel you should do that. Go to the Patreon sign page, patreon.com, and become a patron, right? Would be lovely. And don't forget to listen to Kaikobad Radio, radio.kaikobad.com. Really worth it, and free. Good. So, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon. 